You know those times when you slam a door too hard, but then feel bad because you think the door has feelings? And eventually, you start talking to them, and you talk and talk and talk, and you celebrate your furniture's birthdays and make them get married, and... Don't tell me we're recording. Oh my god. <sighs> if you're a politics enthusiast, or you just want to have a blast, this is the Teen Politics Podcast. Hello and welcome to the very first part of the very first episode of the Teen Politics Podcast. The place where we talk to teenagers about their opinion on what's going on in the world that we live in. I'm your host, Archer. Today, we're talking about something that's very close to all of us. Unless, well, you're a toddler or didn't go to school. We're talking about education. I've split this into two parts. This one covers how the curriculum prepares you for careers in the real world and how COVID-19 can help us rethink how we see school. And the next part will cover the dynamics of inclusion in schools and the important transition. Now, I wanted to start off by talking about examinations, something I'm sure all of us are just shaken to the core just thinking about. I'm personally doing the LGCSE course, and if I'm being honest, the whole concept of big exams doesn't quite sit right with me. For one, how much does it actually teach students? Let's take the IGCSEs, for example. We learn material throughout grade 8, 9, and halfway through 10. The other half of grade 10 goes in revising what we've learned across the two and a half years. But like a lot of other exams, students just usually cram and cram and cram before the exam, regurgitate everything on the paper, and forget everything they've learned. One dilemma that had been troubling me for a while was how much these tests, and more importantly, the curriculum, actually teach students. Does it close the skills gap as it claims, or does it actually expand it? How does it prepare you for job interviews, for communication skills required by employers, if you're just learning how to write an exam instead? I think one thing worth looking at is apprenticeships and on-the-job education, such as seen in places like Germany. But that raises the point of school in the first place. I couldn't answer all of these questions by myself, so I talked to an expert on the subject. Hi, Professor. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Professor Joseph B. Fuller is a professor at Harvard Business School, where he specializes in general management. He co-leads HBS's initiative, Managing the Future of Work. So, I had to ask him these questions I had in mind about the education-employability link. So, let's just dive right into it. So, I was just talking about um, the employability education link, and I started off talking about something called the employability skills gap. Uh, Would you mind explaining what that is? Well, the skills gap broadly defined is a gap between the perceived skills of candidate workers and the requirements that employers envision for any given role. And the the most commonly discussed skills gap would be in areas like digital abilities that um, workers candidate workers, it could be from high school, from community college, from a four-year program, even from a graduate program, will be applying for a job and 
the they will not have the ability to interact with devices or programs or um, other technologies that the employer believes to be essential to doing the job. That has um, been a focus of a lot of research. There, there's an emerging area in the skills gap, though, um, Arjun, that, that I think is very important to call out. The jobs in the United States and in most of the developed world that continue to grow, uh, even grow at a faster rate in terms of their creation than job growth overall. So they're, if you will, they're gaining market share of jobs are not jobs that require what are called hard technical skills. They're jobs that require good social skills. So what's a social skill? Well, of course we hear that and we think of somebody who's who's the life of the party or has a good sense of humor or things like that. And yes, those are social skills, but it's more things like good listening abilities, good spontaneous communication ability, written or oral, uh, empathy, the ability to negotiate, not in the sense of signing a quarterback or, or a center fielder, but uh, in the ability to get to uh, in a mutually acceptable agreement with someone uh, over some open question or issue of contention. And increasingly, uh, certainly in, in, in jobs that require, for example, interaction with customers, employers find that there are more people more candidates with the hard skills, but lack the social skills than vice versa. So as work evolves and as technology becomes more intrusive, social skills are gonna become a bigger and bigger component of what humans do at all levels of compensation and, and from all levels of academic background. And um, that gap is, is pretty substantial. So you can call it the kind of the new skills gap or the, the emerging new category of skills gap. So, you know, one question that obviously comes up because this episode is about education is how schools actually, how can schools help students prepare a, to avoid this new skills gap? Mm-hmm. Well, social skills have historically been essentially delegated to either home. So these are things you learn through modeling your uh, your parent or parents' behavior through interactions. It could be at a place of worship. It could be uh, uh, with friends, uh, could be on holiday, vacation, um, or through extracurricular activities, the debate club, theater, choral societies, uh, uh, even on sports teams. Um, but unfortunately, there are two trends about the historical skills gap, the hard skill, technical skills gap, and this social skills gap, which is from, a, from a, the basis of curriculum design and even what schools, particularly in the K-12 network, think they're responsible for. We don't address these things head on. They not, they're not viewed as goals of the curriculum. Uh, let's look at the way IT has been introduced into most schools. It's been largely introduced to effectively automate or bring new technology to the way we've been teaching things. So it could be as simple as spell check in, in Word, uh, being an indifferent speller. It's made my life hugely easier, but it, it, it has replaced uh, quite a lot of, of 
learning of a more conventional type about how you proofread and things like that. In social skills, we don't design the way we teach or the pedagogy around the notion that we're trying to prepare people, for example, to be able to work in groups or to be able to um, interact with um, people they're unfamiliar with. Um, so even if you imagine, think back to maybe a science class where there's a lab and the teacher says, okay, we're gonna break into groups of three to dissect a frog or to do a chemistry experiment. They may say, okay, everyone in the first row together, when the second row together, when the third row together, they may say, you just pick who you wanna work with. That's certainly a way to gain peace in the classroom and in the lab. Most teachers aren't gonna say now, as part of my lesson plan, I'm going to maybe talk to the homeroom teacher or talk to other teachers in the faculty lounge and put together teams of three of students I've never seen interacting and oblige three, three kids that don't know each other to work together. Not because I'm trying to make some point about breaking up cliques or something, but because what I'm trying to do as part of my lesson plan is to get them to use the problem solving with people they don't know, or maybe even people they don't even like. Because guess what? That happens in the workplace. So I think, I think these social skills and, the, and a broader domain of soft skills can be taught, but we have to have a, a discussion about how they get introduced to curriculum. So the next question I had was, do you think apprenticeships model apprenticeships models and um, on-the-job education such as the ones seen in Germany are a good idea to keep education social well first uh, let me say that that work-based learning uh, which is part of advancing in education is uh, indisputably, an extremely effective way to prepare people for work. And in the limited instances in the United States where we see uh, teenagers as young as ninth and 10th graders who are um, as part of programs being paid to work uh, in jobs and develop skills, that the results in terms of everything from completing high school to staying uh, away from uh, social pathologies, getting involved in the legal system, getting arrested, anything like that, uh, the is uh, uh, drug use, alcohol use, on all measures, students who are involved in that type of activity significantly outperform uh, their uh, control groups that don't. So one of the things that I think is essential for the U.S. is to start having a dialogue about how do we do that. It's extremely hard in the U.S., of course, because we have this balkanized education system where individual cities and towns or unified school districts coming across jurisdictions have very significant um, degrees of independence. And, and the the... Uh, institution that has the most indirect and the, the least least ability to impose change like this is actually the federal government because there's an intervening level of the state. This is also, apprenticeship is also a tool for taking people who are high school graduates or 
uh, people who have a community college degree uh, and getting them on the pathway to a good paying job. Now you alluded to, to Germany and uh, many people will, will uh, ask me, um, well, shouldn't we be more like Germany? And uh, my answer to that is we should learn from the Germans. Uh, I think the Swiss system is, is probably the gold standard and the one that we want to borrow the most from. But even the Swiss system is, it's a byproduct of half a century of, of institutional development. So for example, 70% of students, whether they're in high school or in a post-secondary setting, are part of an apprenticeship program in Switzerland. So if you're a Swiss company, Nestle, let's say, or Swatch, your entire recruiting logic, your, 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 all your processes for recruiting assume a very significant number of the applicants will be coming out of an apprenticeship system. You partner with the educators to make that apprenticeship something that's going to equip those aspiring workers to be effective. Uh, in, in, in Germany and Switzerland, an apprentice is often called a young learner or you know, a young colleague. And they are doing parts of the job. You will go into a Swiss hotel and there'll be a high school age student who's checking you into the hotel as part of their apprenticeship program. Now, in the United States, we don't have anything like that kind of infrastructure built up around the logic of apprenticeship. In addition to which, particularly in Germany, students are highly tracked as of the age of 11 years old. So German and Swiss parents are being told by guidance counselor in what would be middle school in the United States, you're, you're, we don't think your child is college material. We don't think, we think he should or she should get into, you know, a practical skills apprenticeship program like mechanical uh, engineering for to become a repair worker. Uh, now, I don't know about you or your listeners, but I don't want to be the person to be telling American parents that their 12-year-old is not going to college based on my judgment. I certainly want to do, wouldn't want to do it in a, in a state with uh, very lenient gun laws. I don't think I'd make it through a day of telling parents that. So the, the, we need a, a more robust apprenticeship system in the United States, but that's built for this context and analogizing to countries where the entire employment education system has got apprenticeship in its DNA, it gives us some lessons of what works and what doesn't, but it's not a model we can copy. How, how long do you think it'll take for uh, the U.S. to build a system and then implement it to its full degree? Well, the first thing is we actually have a system that's really designed to, to get people from high school into the workforce. And it's a higher ed system. And part of that system works quite well. And that's a part of the system called four-year colleges. Um, and research I've done as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute shows that getting a college degree, finishing your college program, getting a degree is... Uh, hugely correlated with getting a good job and keeping a good job and living a middle-class lifestyle. 
irrespective of how selective the college is. So well, people will say, well, sure, if you go to MIT, you go to Caltech or go to Stanford or go to the, one of the you know, excellent state schools, University of Texas at Austin or University of Michigan Ann Arbor, of course, you're going to get a good job. That's true. But even those highly select schools, the, the, the average income for a graduate of those schools is only a few thousand dollars more a year on average uh, than someone who graduates with a four-year degree from an open enrollment school. So let's put that part of the system aside and go to the, the, the part of the system that serves people who are, have been under the most duress in COVID and before, people who are not going to be among the 40% of, of students your age that go to a four-year college. They're going to do something else. We have a system, uh, uh, the community college system, which really is the skill system or should be the skill system for those uh, students that are not going to go to a four-year college or certainly not going to go directly from high school or from employment to a four-year college. And the community college system in the United States is it can really be pretty fairly de- described as existing in, in two different pools. There is a pool that is quite um, career and technical education, CTE-oriented, and those tend to be more red state systems, and that's about half of the schools. There are about 800 significant community colleges in the United States, Uh, and the other half are more general studies-oriented, where the logic of the program is often where your first two years of college, and you're going to leave us and become a junior or sophomore, depending on how many credit transfers you get in a four-year college. And then you'll get a four-year degree and you'll be living this American dream that everyone from, from movie stars to politicians to corporate leaders want to tell you, you know, you got to go to college to make it in America. You got to go to college to make it in America. See, there, there are many challenges in that system. One is that the link between community colleges and businesses is often uneven, occasionals. There are some superb institutions. Uh, community colleges in the United States do a great job building those relationships, uh, others that don't. And the second problem is that of the in the in the uh, general ed systems, the more in blue states, the number of students that actually get through the program and actually go on to a four-year college is under 20%. So students are going to a community college. They are not getting on a, on, into a program or a field of study that has a clear line of sight and employment. Very often, there's very poor information accessible to them to know what courses actually correlate with the ability to get a job or ability to get a job they're interested in, or they get into the logic of, well, I'm going to go to a four-year college. They start general studies. Uh, Oftentimes, depending on the public school system they came from, they they need a lot of of, uh, remediation, backfilling of things they didn't learn or retain from high school. Could be language arts, could be math. And they they never complete that program. Um, And this is a non-completion is a chronic problem. Where it's a crushing burden is I borrowed $15,000 and I don't have a college degree 
or I don't have a community college degree, or I went to community college and uh, studied nothing that's correlated with being employed. And so I'm making the high school level wage, but I've got this debt. That's a problem. It's called no, you know, some college, no degree. And when that's backed by loans as opposed to Pell Grants, you create a real problem. That's who we ought to be focusing our, our debt relief on. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, one the stat that staggered me the most was I actually didn't know that 60% of uh, students didn't actually get a go to a four-year college, which mm-hmm. is which is really it's scary almost um, to see. If you look at, at people who are already out of college, so people who were born in the, uh, the 90s or the 80s, um, it's less. About 33, 34% of Caucasians are, have graduated college. About 15% of African-Americans and about 14% of Latinx. And um, very interestingly, if you look at where uh, there's been an increase in college matriculation and college graduation, uh, there's been a significant increase in terms of the top two-thirds of households in the United States as defined by household net worth. And there's been no change in the graduation rate for the bottom third in terms of household net worth. So uh, even though household net worth has increased in a lot of jurisdictions. So there's another, there are a lot of issues here, but it also gets to my colleague at Harvard, Professor Chetty's work on, on essentially zip code as a determinant of your future. And we can kind of draw a, a line here, Arjun, if I'm going to a, if I live in a, a poor neighborhood or city or town, on all likelihood, the average performance of people coming out of that K through 12 system will be worse. The likelihood that I um, go to a four-year institution straight out of high school is much lower. If I pursue higher ed, it's more likely to be through a community college system. Uh, often I'm working while learning more than half of students in a community college are holding down a part-time or a full-time job and going to school. And the, and if I'm, if I don't punch my way out of that corner, which is a wonderful Horatio Alger story, we all like to tell each other, but it's less common than we, we, we'd like to actually know. Um, I'm unlikely to end up owning a house. So I'm less likely to end up, uh, I don't get the tax benefit of owning a house, the deductibility of my mortgage, nor do I get any appreciation associated with that. Um, my likelihood of, 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 of creating additional assets in the form of things like 401ks or IRA accounts or, or other things for retirement or liquid assets much lower. And if I have, have, have children, you know, I don't have a 529 account where I'm depositing money to pay for their college as of the day they're, after they're born and things like that. So you get these, these um, uh, cycles where the ability to, not universal ability, but the ability of a lot of people to change their circumstances through making a very successful translation from education to employment uh, is is so impeded that they can't do it 
and the likelihood that children will do it is therefore reduced. And then you get intergenerational poverty. You know, I only have one more question and, you know, I think it's more of a personal question than anything. Okay. Um, but so obviously you saw your kids go through um, school um, just as you did. And did you really see a shift between how you learned versus how your kids learn in school? Uh, yes, to a degree. Um, there was clearly technology accessible to them, which was um, a mixed blessing. The, the, um, you know, when you have an online thesaurus, you don't sit with a thesaurus and look at 30 words to make your choice. And my, my children are old enough now, so they didn't live in the world where there were websites that you could type your math problem in Algebra 2 into it and have the solution pop out. But, um, uh, but is also great in terms of the accessibility of resource, just the ability to, to uh, you know, click on a link in a Wikipedia article and, and read 10 paragraphs on something you didn't know that you're interested in. Obviously, the quality of the equipment and things like uh, science labs was greatly better. I think that curriculum has changed in ways that has actually reduced the amount of general knowledge that students are exposed to, even in, in teaching graduate students now um, at Harvard, I find that um, I'm surprised by some of the things that well-educated, you know, historically successful students are not familiar with. Uh, could be topics in literature, art, history, culture, and religion. And it, it does, sometimes I'm taking it back because we're talking about students who are, you know, graduate students at, at the Harvard Business School, which is a happily a very selective institution. And they're very, very talented, impressive young people. It's a pleasure to be around. But nonetheless, um, so I think curriculum has changed uh, to a degree, to somewhat, and uh, even at university level. Uh, so the courses tend to be more specific and more reflection, reflection of the research interests of faculty. And um, I don't see uh, one thing that bothers me quite a bit, Arjun, is a way I often discuss it with with audiences is through a rhetorical question, which is why are there Russian teenage hackers? And and people always look at me slightly confused and and then I answer my own question. It's because every Russian high schooler has to take four years of what's called informatics. So they don't they don't spend their time figuring out how to get cool apps on their iPads. They know how the thing works. They've done some coding. They understand basics of network. So they understand the basics of databases. Does that mean they're all going to be tech entrepreneurs and invent the next Google or the next Tesla? No. But it mean, if, if every kid in a country is exposed to something, then you can bet that they will, you know, 10 or 15 or 20% of those students will excel. And if I could snap of my fingers uh, and make changes in, in K through 12 education, the two big changes I would immediately, since I'm going to only going to snap twice with my, since I have two hands, one would be a dramatic, essentially nationwide introduction of paid work-based learning opportunities starting in high school for kids who are interested. And the second would be mandatory, well-financed, well-taught informatics 
essentially being starting in middle school and going through grade 12. Transition. We've all been hit by the curveball that is COVID-19. And the students among us know the troubles of online school. You easily procrastinate, you strain your eyes, and in many cases like mine, online school happens at bizarre hours. But I think after a year or so of this, we've all accepted the situation we're in. I brought up online school for a specific reason. Because I think it's the perfect time to possibly reimagine education as we know it. What is school for? In my book, it's to gain knowledge while also growing as a person, learning new skills like handling pressure, social etiquette, gaining points of view, and most importantly, giving you the ability to always learn. And school does all of this to some extent. But I feel as though there's so many more possibilities. It can be so much more efficient. For example, my school's IGCSE pretty much writes off the whole 10th grade to revise. Other schools have a two-year curriculum where the 10th grade is both learning and revising. So it's either writing off a whole year for revising or having a whole year to cram more. Recently, a lot of IGCSE boards have cancelled their exams because of the pandemic and a lot of grading has been passed on to teacher assessment. Now, teachers can't assess properly because they're teaching, how to, they're teaching students how to write an exam rather than, well, actually teaching, and also the fact that most of the students have been online. But we can change the first part, right? We can say that we shouldn't be graded on how we write a test, but rather how we apply our knowledge. Shouldn't that be the norm? I'm not saying tests are bad. They're a good indicator for how well the student is doing, but it shouldn't go to the point where classwork just doesn't matter. And I think COVID-19 has taught us that. Professor Fuller's point about how the American education system should go to things like apprenticeships and more useful courses such as the IT that's happening in Russia is a really good point. And also the fact that the new skills gap is becoming more social Schools should prepare their students for that rather than how to write an exam. Anyways, that's all for part one of this episode on education. I hope you enjoyed part one. Stay tuned for part two next week, but until then, thanks and see ya.